It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. A new week of the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show, as we uh, welcome you in to talk some baseball things. Hi, everybody. I'm Tyler Mont, Sam Dexter's in New York City. Hello, Sam. Hi, Tyler. We we said last week we would be back. We did. And here we are. We didn't lie to you. Actually. We yeah, go. we uh, last the week was a right. Over well, the, yeah. the airwaves podcast and, airwaves. Yeah, I don't need my flesh downloaded to anybody's <laughs> listening device. Thank you very much. But uh, no, like last week was a very special episode, and yeah, there's a we got a, a lot of good feedback, and we're glad it meant a lot of, to people in the same way it meant a lot to us. Minor league baseball season being canceled um, it was. It was, a, it was a down week, um, and you know it, it hurt. But we said we were going to come back and talk about baseball going forward. And baseball is still around at the major league level, and that means prospects are still getting chances, and there's still lots for us to talk about. And with Ben, in a couple of segments, we have lots to talk about in terms of the business side and the history of baseball and all that fun stuff. So we said we weren't going anywhere, and here we are, having not gone anywhere. Exactly, um, and it's good. To, it's good to have heard from all of you after. Last week's episode and after the news of the cancellation of the minor league season uh, in 2020, but obviously it looks like we will hopefully get some baseball played here in the next couple of weeks. Uh, still some some complications and things to work through, but hopefully we're getting closer to that. And uh, we got a lot coming up for you on this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, this week's nationwide road to the show ambassador is the second-ranked prospect in the Seattle Mariners organization. Julio Rodriguez will join us coming up here in a little bit. Uh, then we will hear from Benjamin Hill. We will We'll also hear from Rob Terranova, who's got a great story on the uh, brief minor league life of Nolan Ryan, uh, who put up just comically dominant numbers in the minors before breaking into the big leagues at 19 and pitching in the majors for like 68 years. Um, but uh, before we get to all that, we are going to talk uh, a little bit about some prospects who will be playing baseball and already are playing baseball. Uh, the 60-player pools that were announced by Major League Clubs uh, as of not yet two weeks ago, but about 10 days ago. We're recording this on Wednesday the 8th. Um, the, a lot of them prospect stacked. Some of them, eh, not really so much. Look at the Baltimore Orioles. But uh, there are some really intriguing groups on these squads. So if you were not with us last week or the last couple of weeks to uh, digest and understand how Major League rosters will work for this season, each team made a 60-player pool finalized and public as of a couple of weeks ago. There will be a 30-player active opening day roster on each major league team either july 23rd or july 24th depending on who your favorite team is two weeks after that those rosters will go down to 28 players two weeks after that they will go down to 26 players the remaining players uh the ones who are not on either the active major league roster or the taxi squad which is a group of three possible replacement players for injuries and that type of stuff uh who will be on hand for road trips and those things uh the remaining players will all be part of a group that will train at an alternate site every major league organization 
organization has named an alternate site uh, for its players to uh, train and to practice and play inter-squad games and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but there are some organizations that looked at this and, then, and said, let's get every single top prospect into the mix. And uh, Sam had a toolshed column this week talking about some of the most intriguing groups, and there are a lot of them. Yeah, no, and that's the interesting thing about this is that it, on one hand, you would think it might just be, hey, who are the most prospect-heavy farm systems? Essentially, like breaking down the top 10 player pools to watch would just be which are the 10 most loaded farm systems. And it, and it didn't quite work out that way because, yeah, a lot of these systems are particularly loaded and they brought all their guys to camp. But it's not as interesting if they just brought them there and the guys are going to get workouts at secondary sites, mostly minor league parks. Um, it's more interesting to me if they brought guys to the player pool and they actually hope or expect them to compete. So that's why I put the Padres at number one. It's like the the player pool I will be following the most. Um, not only just because all the big names are there, you know, Mackenzie Gore is there, Luis Patino is there, uh, Michelle Baez, Adrian Morahone, Luis Camposano, I think could get a chance. CJ Abrams is there. They even sent their first rounder this year, Robert Hassel the third, even though he's a high school player, they want him getting reps uh, nearby. But it's just that the Padres in a 60 game season are closer to a playoff spot than they've been in years. And so if they're looking at maybe being a game back, two games back, or maybe a couple games up in the wild card race in the NL, and they're just going to have Mackenzie Gore and Luis Patino hanging out, not getting meaningful innings. Well, there's no more meaningful innings to get right now without minor league baseball than in the majors. Um, So that's where I'm going to keep a close eye on this Padres camp. I know Mackenzie Gore had a outing this week against major league competition at Padres camp and it didn't go so great. It's early in camp still. Tyler mentioned we're still two weeks away from what opening day would be. I wouldn't expect Mackenzie Gore to come up anyways until like the last 30 games. But uh, the thing I'm looking forward to most are things like is Wander Franco actually going to get a chance for the Rays this year? The Rays, we expect to be playoff contenders when you have maybe the best bet in bat in the minors no matter how young he is just hanging out do you just let him continue to get like live bp sessions or do you allow him to face actual major league hitting and get a chance to adjust to that um so the rays are right up there the tigers i had at number two because i don't i don't expect the tigers unlike the padres and rays i don't think the tigers are going to compete at all but they are really relying on casey mize Tarek scoobal matt manning alex fado to be their future rotation. Those guys need actual innings. They need to go against good bats. There was a chance that in the second half of this year, they were going to make their major league debut anyways. So instead of doing some bullpen sessions, some intra-squad games, what have you, let them pitch You know, in Detroit. Let them get those innings where they need to get them. If they get shellacked, okay, great, whatever, fine. Uh, you know, they'll they'll take that. They'll adjust to it in, in the offseason. But if you can get these guys three or four major league starts and, and get them a little bit of a taste of what that final level is like, I think that's going to be huge. Um, and, you know, that's why they brought them along is because they want these guys getting work. They want to keep a close eye on them. They know they're the future. And, you know, there's a there's a couple other systems like that. The Marlins aren't going to compete. But Sixto Sanchez is there. Jesus Sanchez is there. Um stuff like that. The Chicago White Sox are trying to compete really hard. There's a real chance that 
Nick Madrigal will be their starting second baseman pretty quickly in the the start of the 2020 season. We already know Luis Robert and Michael Kopech are basically major leaders already. Um, Andrew Vaughn is around. I know he got some time at third base. He's normally a first baseman, but that's just a sign of, hey, let's see where we can play him uh, because they have Encarnacion, Encarnacion, excuse me, and Jose Abreu at first base. So they're basically already set at first base slash DH. Andrew Vaughn, get him some reps at third. We'll see what happens. Um, but these 60-man player pools, without minor league baseball, you know, I was just on a call a little while ago for the Astros, and Dusty Baker was saying, there's nowhere to send these guys. We can't send them to AAA or A to get their innings and say, oh, they just need experience. The only experience they're going to get is in the majors. That's what's uh, important right now. And I, I think that's really exciting to think about in terms of what that means for certain prospects and how they could get called up even earlier, no matter the situation, whether it's it, whether they're in a competitive race or if the teams aren't playing for anything, hey, we still need to get these guys innings. We might as well do it now. There are a lot of really intriguing teams. Sam's got good write-ups uh, in the Toolshed column, which is up at MILB.com right now. And uh, one of the guys who is in one of the most intriguing groups joins the show this week, the Seattle Mariners, who are number four in Sam's rankings. Their number two prospect, Julio Rodriguez. We got a chance to catch up with Julio last week uh, as our nationwide road to the show ambassador. And uh, a fun conversation that's coming up. There is a, a very divergent road that the two of us took in, in maintaining our physical shape uh, during this quarantine period. And you will hear us discuss that. Julio Rodriguez from the Seattle Mariners joins the show next. As an official partner of Minor League Baseball, Nationwide's here to make sure you're protected for every pitch life throws at you. Visit Nationwide.com today to see how we can help meet your needs. Nationwide is on your side. Go to the Seattle Mariners organization this week, which is a, a place where I feel like if you grab any prospect from the Mariners organization, they're going to be really exciting and really fun guys to uh, to watch and to talk to and to talk about. And uh, this week we've got one of the best ones in the uh, number two prospect in that system uh, and a dude who is in Major League Baseball is not only top 100 prospects, but top 20. He is number 18 overall, and that is outfield prospect Julio Rodriguez, who joins the show just a couple of days away from heading to Seattle to hopefully get this uh, – 2020 season off and rolling. Julio, how are you, man? What's been going on the last uh, week or so since you found out that you were going to be headed to, to Seattle real soon? Really good, really good. The past like week and a, week and a half has been really excited since baseball is back, and now that I'm heading to Seattle, it's, it's even better now. So I'm so excited. It's been really, really good past few weeks. This uh, group that you guys have uh, getting set to uh, to head to Seattle is maybe the most exciting group uh, for the the other 30 prospects. Obviously, we've kind of explained this in the last couple of episodes. Each major league team naming 60-player pools um, that will get to be part of their 2020 season. So you've got 40-man roster guys and then a lot of non-roster invitees as well. But the Mariners put 14 – their top 14 prospects in the MLB pipeline top 30 are all in that group. They also added a couple of 2020 draft selections. I mean, you are part of like a prospect all-star team that is headed to Seattle. How cool is that for you that – and so many other organizations are, you know, kind of picking some of their their more veteran guys or going a different route and how they're building this group. But Jerry Depoto and, and Andy McKay and the Mariners staff said, no, we want to see our best prospects out there. How cool is that for you guys? It, it is really cool, to be honest. It, like, seeing a lot of young players like that, 
like grinding, he, he's really cool. Like, and, and being part of it is even, is even better. Like, I'll talk to some of the, my friends that are going there, and I'm really excited. I cannot wait to see what we do, how we do over there. And how are you approaching this time? Because uh, you're probably going to be part of the alternate site at one point in Tacoma, um, not quite in the majors, but still a step away, the closest you've ever been to the majors. When you found out you were going to be added to this player pool, what did that mean about the way you were going to approach getting to work out there when you when you get it to Washington State? Uh, to be honest, like I was really happy when I, whenever I found out, and I also found out I was going to be in a taxi squad, which is as you said, like the closest thing that I have been to the mayors. Like I feel really excited because the thing is still thinking about me. You know, they they got me in their plan because they they brought me there to Washington, and it gets me really excited. It doesn't matter if I play in the big league or not, but I was still excited. I, I was still grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, and w- what conversations did they have with you when they told you, hey, you are going to be part of this player pool, taxi squad, whatever you want to call it? Um, you know, When did you find out, and how much of the process did they cue you in on, of, of, like what they're expecting and what the next steps are for you? Uh, I found out, like... Uh, like five days ago, I think, five and six days ago. And that was basically what they said. You know, you're going to come to Seattle and also you're going to be part of other taxi squads. That, that's pretty much what they said. And I was really tired for it. And, yeah, that's basically it. Gotcha. And and uh, being this close, I mean, Seattle is a group that really trusts its youngsters. Guys like Kyle Lewis and Justin Dunn and Justice Sheffield got to get called up at the very end of last year. It's a very short season this year, but considering how close you are and how much uh, or how big of a place you have in Seattle's future, do you think it's even a possibility that you could see the majors this year? Oh, uh, baseball. Baseball is crazy, so everything everything can happen. That's how, that's how I see it. Like everything can happen. Like one day they might say something, or they might have some plans. But the next day it's a whole different story. You know, baseball is crazy, and I feel like everything is possible. Everything is possible. And do you feel like you would be ready for the, that chance? You know, let's say I was going to call it Safeco, but T-Mobile Park now. Uh, if you were to have to dig in right now, do you feel like you could be a impactful major leaguer, even given you know your youth and the fact that you've only played so far at, at Class A advanced? Yeah, I feel like I'm. As you said, I'm I'm young. Uh, I'm not play just like in high A, but based on my talent and the way that I do stuff, I feel like. I feel like I would be ready to compete with anybody in baseball right now. That's pretty awesome to hear. Um, Julio, last year, uh, between a, a couple of different Class A levels, you tear the cover off the ball, and uh, I know the the season in total, you would have loved to have been able to get the full 140 games in, but um, take a fastball to the left hand in April, um, a hairline fracture, you come back and you finish so strong. When you look back on the 2019 season, especially having had to deal with an injury your first time, you know, on a, a roster for a full season team in the States, how happy were you to be able to get back and finish so strong? Because especially when you're trying to do it, um, you know, at, at uh, 18 years old and um, and being challenged with an injury, um, what was that like for you uh, to, to come back and make sure that you finished on such a good note? 
so in the beginning of that process, it was really tough for me because I, I was off a great start, to be honest. I was off a great start, too, in the, in the beginning of the season. And facing that injury, that got me a little down, but because of my family and my and my organization, they, they really, like, cheer me up through, through all that process. So I was really, like, because I, I love playing the game. So I was really excited just to get ready and get back playing because I was really hungry to play because I wanted to show who I was. And then when once I got I got back to that field, I was like, okay, this is why why but this is why I came I came here. I came to show who I was. And then I just I was just so excited. I I I was just, I was trying to do my best. And thank to God and I was blessed. Like I could finish strong. One of the the things that we've followed over the last year and is uh, one of our favorite storylines in in all of baseball is your relationship and your friendship with Jared Kelenic. And uh, we talked with Jared a couple weeks ago on the show, um, and he just talked so much about how you made him feel so welcome when he first got into the organization, and you guys hit it off so instantly. Um, it's probably it was probably tougher to be you in that situation because here you are as a, a young prospect, so talented in an organization. And then all of a sudden, that organization goes out and gets somebody who is as good and plays your position. And there's probably some difficulty in that that a lot of guys would not be able to handle. But you take it as an opportunity of this guy's my brother he's my teammate we're going to be best friends and that's been so cool for us to watch from an outsider's perspective tell us about your relationship with jared when you guys first got to know each other and what that's like now being able to kind of climb uh the ladder together towards seattle uh it was it was really cool to be honest i i, I he's got he's kind of shy like he doesn't talk much so I'm I'm very like friendly and I love to talk. So whenever like I saw him over there in, in the in the spring training facilities, I was like, this gotta be Jared Cullen, the guy that just got traded here. So I wanted to introduce myself and like be nice because he's like new. He, as as a new guy, he might feel like a little weird or some stuff like that. So I wanted to show to show to him that he he can be comfortable and talk to me like like as a friend, you know. So I came up, I came up to him and say hi. And we we introduced each other. He tried to speak some Spanish because he figured that I was like Dominican or something like that. So he, he tried to speak Spanish. So whenever I I came up to him and talked English, he was like he was so surprised. <laughs> so it was pretty cool meeting him. Yeah, and going like and right now we are like really really close. We're like brothers right now, and it's really cool like seeing somebody like you compete every day, but it's like it's as a, like as a friends like to help each other out. And see that we can like climb the ladder together. It is really cool. It's really cool because I love to my teammates like to see because that makes me happy. Like if we also see, it would be better for the team. That's how. That's the way I look at it. So it was. It was really cool. It was really really cool to be honest. Like meeting him and all the stuff that we have been through. It's, it's been really really good. Another thing that's been so awesome about watching you guys um, form that that bond and that relationship, uh, not just between the two of you, but with all these other prospects in your organization, Mariners fans are so starved for a winner. And the way that you guys in, in that organization have been stockpiling talent and prospects and how many are getting close now uh, toward the major league level, it's so cool when, uh, you know, when you will tweet something about how you're going to win a championship someday and Jared retweets it. Or, or backs it up and he says something of his own and, and Logan Gilbert and Evan White and Justin Dunn and Kyle Lewis and all these guys are in on that conversation. Mariners fans get so excited about that. What does it mean to you 
to know that Mariners fans are are so eagerly watching your development um, and and seeing how you guys might well be that that next step that brings a, a winning uh, type of baseball back to Seattle. And then, to be honest, it's really cool because we know that like that they have been through a lot of years without winning and all that, and now that they get excited because of us, it's like it was like more support, you know, because we play for them, we play for the city, we're going to play for the city, we're going to win for the city. That's, that's the, and, and all of the fans, that they, they love us, they, they support us, it just, it just feels amazing. Like they are really positive about our group, and I love to see that. I love to see that. Every time I see some comments, like on my post or, or somewhere else, it just like makes me really happy. It makes me more like hungry to bring that championship to the, to the, to the city. And we all feel like that. I'm telling you, we all feel like that. And it, it's not just me. It's not just Jerry. It's just everybody in the organization feels, feels that way. And Julio, looking on your career so far, like we said, it, it's only been two seasons uh, so far, but it seems like your career is one of pretty easy transitions. You go to the Dominican Summer League after signing in, in 2017. In 2018, in the DSL, you hit 315. You have a 929 OPS. 2019, we talked about West Virginia and Modesto doing well there as well. Now you're about to take on another transition to this taxi squad player pool. Um, what do you do to ease the transitions when you're joining a new team, when you're going to spring training for the first time, when you're part of major league spring training for the first time, how do you make those transitions so easy? Um, I feel like with me, it's going to easy because I'm, I'm like, so spontaneous. Like I, I love talking to people. I love like introduce myself first. I'm never like afraid of anything. Like I'm never shy. So I feel like every time I'm in a new place, I just want to like, Meet people like like form a bond with them, and that's what makes it easier. And all the guys like here in the organization are really nice. They are really easy to talk. So just like that's that's why it makes it easier. It's just I don't know. Just, I feel like my personality too that like, helped me help me out a lot with the guys, like to actually like click right away because I'm 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 a person that's really easy to talk, and I love to to spend time with my friends. So. so I just, I, we literally formed a fr- friendship right right away. So it just, that, I feel like that's the way it makes it easier for me. And from a skills perspective, obviously a reason why you are one of the top 20 prospects in baseball is because you are a very good hitter uh, from the right side. But being able to hit as well as you have at every level, DSL, Class A, High A, even the Arizona Fall League last fall, um, what's allowed your skills – your offensive skills to translate this well? Uh, I feel like it's the way I approach the game. I feel like uh, I always try to be like a step ahead like of everything. Like, I don't know. Like, I know myself a lot. So let's say if if I know that maybe I'm, I'm, I'm making like a little mistakes like on the play, I, I try to like get it like fit right away. Like, I don't have any trouble like to get long. I just want to like show every 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 problem that I got hitting. If I if I have some struggle hitting, I just want to like get it done like right away with that. And that's why I make adjust adjustment like really quick. And I feel like that's what allows me like to hit be- to hit good. And I was getting better throughout like the season. And beyond just that, I mean, you're 
transitioning you mentioned before talking about transitioning to players and getting to know players really well um, but just we're talking to you here on July 1st normally the international signing period begins on July 2nd it won't this year but just three years ago you signed uh, coming out of the Dominican Republic and first entered the Mariner system not long after you were already debuting in the United States what was that transition like you know not only just trying to learn what it's like to play at class A and going against tougher arms but also adjusting to the travel schedule and going through the Sally League at a time you did when you were still only 18 uh, it was it was uh, it was a little hard, but I was gonna prepare for it because I had like friends that are older than me and they have been through it. So even before when I was in Dominica, I was I was, I was out trying to learn English uh, because to make to make that a little easier. It was thanks thank to my dad though because he was the one that put me in the, this English school because you know whenever you come from the Dominican Republic that you speak all every, everything in Spanish over there. And then you come to a new country with a new language and all that. You, sometimes it, it could be a little hard, you know, because you know the culture and all that. But yeah, that's that's how I, that's how I went through the process. I learned I learned some English in VR. Then when I, whenever I came here, it was a little different because it was like literally just my second time here in the United States. But I try I, I try to adapt to to the rules here because it's just way different than my country. But yeah, that's that's how I, that, that's 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 how I do it. Like I just try to like learn as much as I could, and you know, being in a different country, just try to learn and try to learn for the other people from here too. Julio, one thing that a lot of people in the Mariners organization rave about with you is your leadership skills. And uh, I think, you know, to be 18 and and see a guy in the clubhouse who has just gotten traded and to have the presence of mind to think, oh, he probably feels awkward. I should go introduce myself. Not a lot of 18-year-olds would think that way. Is the is the leadership side of things, is that something that's always been kind of part of your mentality even when you were a kid or you were growing up playing on teams? Or has that come along as you've started to um, progress in your professional career? I feel like that comes since I was a kid because all the time, like I used to lead the team, like to give advice to my friends. I feel like that that's, that have been along with me like a long time ago since I was a kid. Because every time, even whenever I moved to uh, to Santiago to the to the academy at time, I just I just felt like I was leading them all. Like they were like listening to me. Like they were all, I was like willing to talk to me to get better to finding any advice. I feel like that's how it has been with me. How much does it help your your teammates, um, you know, whether from the DR or Venezuela or wherever, um, if they don't speak English, to have somebody like you who can be a, a go-between, you know, not only in, in clubhouses and on the field and all that, but kind of in a, you know, a societal place. You get thrown into the South Atlantic League. You're in West Virginia. There's not a ton of people in Charleston, West Virginia, who are going to be, uh, you know, bilingual, I would imagine. How much does that help your, your yeah. Spanish-language teammates, your Spanish-speaking teammates to have you around? Uh, it, it was really helpful for them because even to order food, uh, I would help them. Like I, I was, I was willing to help them because I knew that they didn't speak uh, any English and that it was hard for them. So it was like really, it, it really like made like their stay in West Virginia or whenever they were hanging out around with me. Uh, it was it really made it easier for them, and they were really glad to have me. Like they would, they would literally tell me like, "Bro, take it for real," because. If you were not here, I, I would not be able to do it. 
I was really, I was really happy to help him out too. And, and uh, yeah, Julio. So now we're, you know, kind of ending this period of quarantine for you. Um, but we haven't really talked about this yet. And as you were preparing to go to Seattle and, and join the player pool, um, what have these last couple months been like for you? You know, we, we talked before we went on air that you're working out of Tampa, but what have you been working on? What has been your focus and how have you, how have you tried to stay fresh in some way in anticipation of this move uh, up to Seattle? Uh, so the past few months for me, to be honest, I've been training really, really hard. Like, uh, working always, like, in my body, I've been working really, really hard. In my, in my swim, in my swing, I did, I did some adjustments that I needed to do that I was going to do in spring training, but because everything was tough, I just couldn't do it. So I was doing some little adjust my swing. I'll be, like, working out a lot because I found, uh, uh, actually my age for this place while we were in quarantine that I was able to train. So I was really lucky that I, I, I had a place to train. So yeah, that's what I did. Training a lot and working out my body and making a little adjustments to my swing. That's all I focused on this past three months. What are those adjustments to that swing? I mean, when you were in major league camp for a brief time before uh, we all had to go into quarantine. You know, was there something you would notice or something you've been trying to implement since? I mean, where where are these adjustments coming from? Just some some things that I've, I've been noticed that I was that I was doing. So I just, I just wanted to get better at it. I just wanted to get better and more consistent at it to have better results. The thing that I was going to ask is when you're a baseball player who has now had an off season for like nine months and you've just been working out and, and trying to perfect things, are you just jacked right now? Like you're listed at 6'4", 225. you got such a good outfielder's build. Are you just muscle on muscle at the moment because you haven't, haven't been breaking down over the course of a season? I mean, the physical condition has got to be pretty impressive by this point. Yeah, I'm telling you, I, I, I got really strong now. <laughs> I even a little stronger than what I was before, so it's been really good. It will be really fun to watch. I'm telling you. I definitely uh, went the other way during quarantine. I uh, I have not built any muscle. <laughs> <laughs> I built <do> a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very jealous of that. <laughs> um, all right, well, we've got a, a couple to end on, but first off, um, one thing I meant to ask before when we were talking about the player pool, when you, whenever you go to the alternate site and head to uh, Tacoma, potentially, like we said, there's going to be a lot of prospects there. A lot of guys that you don't get to face necessarily because they're all part of your organization. We talked about Logan Gilbert, you know, George Kirby, Emerson Hancock getting at it as well. Who is the pitcher you're looking most forward to facing now that you get to do that in this environment? Oh, definitely Logan Gilbert. Definitely Logan Gilbert, yeah. Why is that? Why am? Uh, I don't know. Since, since since we met, I knew I knew he was a really good preacher, and we always have been messing around that we wanted to face each other. So now that I got a chance, I definitely want to face him. I I, I told him I was going to get home, so let's see how it goes. <laughs> now the gauntlet, I feel like it's been thrown thrown down then. Um, so yeah, so we asked before, you know, do you feel like you could contribute to the majors this year? We'll see if it happens. Obviously a lot of steps to, to go to make that happen. But when you close your eyes and, and dream about your first major league at bat and try to envision it, what do you see? How do you see that going? 
Oh my goodness! I see that stadium, the T-Mobile Stadium, pop. I see a pie. Everybody yelling my name. My family understands, and it just oh my goodness! It just the best feeling in the world, to be honest. And I, I, I I'm not even there yet, so I don't like how I feel whenever I'm I'm in that body spot. So I just like the stadium, the stadium pie, my family, and me just there being me, having fun. And obviously getting a hit in the first the first AV. <laughs> okay, good. I was thinking about it. Though. I was okay. thinking about it. Though, not gonna lie. <laughs> I was gonna say you can't. You have to envision the result too. Like you can't just yeah <laughs> sit on the the path. Definitely, yeah. I'm telling you, it, was, right. it is the best feeling you had. Cool. And we'll end on this one, uh, Julio. We've been asking everybody this since we went into quarantine. And, you know, just this week they announced that there will be no minor league baseball season. So this question even has a little bit more heft now. But in your experience in the minors, whether it's the DSL, West Virginia, Modesto, even the AFL, if you want, um, what has been your favorite minor league memory? My favorite minor league memory? I feel like it wasn't Modesto, though, because. And that I had a, I won five and five, and that that was really crazy game. I really cannot even forget that day. I literally remember every every single bad that I took that day. The happiness on my team that we were winning, pushing for the playoffs, for a playoff spot. It was like really cool memory for me that day. Whenever I won five and five. That is awesome. I think I remember that day actually. I think I had the I think I had the cow league that day. And uh, it's like, man, does anybody ever get this kid out? <laughs> At what point is somebody going to get Julio Rodriguez out? doesn't happen very often. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Julio is the second-ranked prospect in the Seattle organization, number 18 in baseball overall. You can find him on Twitter, by the way, at J underscore Rod Show. And, uh, man, travel safe uh, up to the Seattle area. The the alternate site for the Mariners will be at Cheney Stadium in Tacoma, the home of the Tacoma Rainiers. So you'll get a, a sneak peek at your uh, your AAA venue. Um, but if, if any indication over the last couple of years, probably not going to be spending long in any of those stops on your way to Seattle. And uh, congratulations on all success so much, man. And we can't wait to see you out on a field again real soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys. Checking in with Ben Hill this week from uh, his uh, compound in Brooklyn. We'll just say that we're all working from our own home compounds. Hi, Ben. Hi, Tyler. And hi, Sam. Yeah, I am in my compound. Um, I've never referred to it as a compound (laughs) until uh, just now, but it is a compound. I've got stockpiles of all essential items in my compound, and I'm, uh, you know, here for the duration for as long as I need to be. What is the uh, what's like the the thing when you need a snack at home during the quarantine era? Well, are you like a like a salty guy? Do you have like a are you like a cookies guy? What's the thing you always have to have or that you run out of most? Well, I'm 100% always been a, a salt freak, 100%. Um, and I've actually been keeping it limited. I've actually been kind of eating less junk because being home all day, like, it's just too dangerous. Like, Sam knows, like, in the office, you know, I was always walking over to our cafeteria and uh, buying pop chips and Cool Ranch Doritos, and I'm just such a sucker for that kind of thing. But a big fan of corn nuts. I mean, not just recently, my whole life, but I've been buying corn nuts quite a bit. Um, not corn nuts the brand, but just corn nuts, uh, you know, at a uh, Asian grocery store, and they're just packaged as corn nuts. 
I don't know oh, if that's okay. a copyright infringement on corn nuts, which maybe is a compound word. Speaking of compounds, I don't know. <laughs> corn nuts are great. It's toasted corn, oil, salt. You know, a three-word, uh, uh, three, not three words, but uh, three items in the ingredients. Uh, very simple snack, and yes, yeah, salty, but uh, I find them endlessly satisfying. What well, uh, transitions us well into uh, talking about a couple of the pieces that you've got on the site right now. We last week missed out on catching up on the uh, the Midwest League. Did you know facts? Um, Sixteen teams in the Midwest League, and then you round out the Class A level with the other fourteen who are in the South Atlantic League. But there's always food, and there's always uh, fun stuff like that. Let's start in the Midwest League uh, and go through some of the the best facts from uh, one of the two full season Class A levels. There are th- some things in the Midwest League, even just in your first couple of fun facts, that are things that I had completely forgotten about, uh, like the Beloit Snappers White Wall Ninja uh, and the fact that the Bowling Green Hot Rods, along with the Lake County Captains, did not start their franchise history in the Midwest League. They had to move there from the South Atlantic League after a year. Uh, But uh, there's a lot of good stuff in the Midwest League stuff. Yeah, Midwest League, uh, that was a fun article to write. I mean, it was a tedious one to write just because there's 16 teams. There's a lot of teams in the Midwest League. Only the Midwest League and the Pacific Coast League have that many teams in the league, 16. And uh, so there's a lot going on there. And for whatever reason on Twitter, I feel like there's more vocal Midwest League fans than uh, other fans. I feel like the Midwest League has kind of more of a fan base of the league itself. You usually don't meet too many league fans. But a lot of uh, strong Midwest League supporters, so I got a lot of good suggestions for things to include and some good debate afterwards about what I did and did not include. And, yeah, it's been 16 teams since, I believe, was that 2009 when, uh, yeah, the captains and uh, Bowling Green switched over. Um, Bowling Green Hot Rods played one season in the South Atlantic League before moving to the Midwest League. Uh, so, you know, that was a very special moment in history, the one year where Bowling Green Hot Rods were in the South Atlantic League. Never forget. And one of my favorite things about the Midwest League is just Dayton's sellout streak. It, it's crazy. You, you say it currently stands at 1,385. Um, it, what makes Dayton so special about this? Because I feel like it, would, it wouldn't surprise me if a AAA team did this. There, there are guys right next to the majors. There's a reason why to come to the ballpark every, every night. The Dayton Dragons are just really good at Class A, guys who are just starting their careers. The baseball is not necessarily as great, and yet they've sold out close to 1,400 games in a row. Why are they so successful at that? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing, like the, the, the fact I put about the Dayton Dragons, you know, certainly mentioned the sellout streak, but it was kind of making the point that, you know, they've never won a league title. And we, of course, we know that, you know, a, te- a minor league team's attendance rarely correlates to how the team is doing on the field. But there is, to me, kind of a, a fun irony in the fact that a team that has sold out the most games in professional sports history, the longest consecutive sellout streak, uh, you know, has never won a title. You have to go back. No, even before when they were in Rockford, Illinois, they never won a title either. So that franchise is not one. In terms of why Dayton has been so successful, you know, I, I visited there. I've written about it in the past. To me, it still is like there's still somewhat of an element of mysteriousness. Not that they've been successful. That's uh, not hard to see why. I mean, they have a really good front office staff. You know, they're really focused on groups. Um, you know, so they're not a team that releases a promo schedule where you're like, oh my god, I can't believe they're doing this bobblehead. But they uh, they go all out on groups. They have a you know a beautiful you know, you know one of the best Class A ballparks you can see downtown. You know they're drawing from a bigger uh, market than most Class A teams. So between being operated well, being a great ballpark, being an area that loves baseball, and you know is a Reds affiliate in the in the state of Ohio, not too far from Cincinnati. Uh, there's a lot of ingredients to play there. But 
at the same time, you just think like, wow, how they sold out every single game. I don't really have an answer as to what has just kind of tipped the scales to make it that much of a hot ticket. Cause that's kind of insane that there are 70 games a year and this franchise since what the year 2000 uh, has sold out like every single game ever. It's just kind of hard to fathom. There's also a really good one, the West Michigan Whitecaps, uh, who played in uh, Fifth Third Ballpark. That is one of, like, 97 stadiums named after Fifth Third Bank. It's not actually that many. But uh, Ben runs you through all of the different parks, uh, not only in the minor leagues, but in the Midwest League uh, that either currently or uh, previously have had ties to Fifth Third Bank in their name. A little bit confusing. Um, the South Atlantic League, which um, previously had uh, a couple of now current members of the uh, – of the Midwest League, but the South Atlantic League now 14 teams uh, to round out the Class A level. This is a, a more historic league, at least in terms of how far back some of the uh, team uh, roots go. The Asheville Tourists, of course, over a, a century old. The Augusta Green Jackets, uh, a team that can kind of trace itself back to the early part of the 1900s. Um, there's so much in the in the Sally League that's uh, really kind of classic minor league stuff. What, what were some of your favorites from the Sally League? Yeah, well, that is a that is a fun league for sure, and it's funny. Like the South Atlantic League was founded in 1980, um, but you know most of those teams have roots that go far further back than that. And before it was the South Atlantic League, it was called the Western Carolina League. I mean, one of my favorite facts about the league, not just by teams, is that the Western Carolina League was founded by a former minor league baseball player who was 29 at the time, John Henry Moss, and he's founded that league in 1948 and then he was still president in 1980 when that league shifted to the south atlantic league and stayed as south atlantic league president uh through 2007 so this guy had um you know practically six decades of experience you know operating this league and just you know how much the game changed in that amount of time i met john henry he died in 2009 i believe i met him at a uh a promo seminar or winter meetings, one of the very first industry events I ever attended. And it was one of those big, you know, big bar, you know, country music band playing, you know, buffets, dark, crowded. And, you know, there's this, you know, guy in his late 80s in a suit walking around all dignified. And I was just like, that's, you know, I kind of turned him into a celebrity in my mind. I was like, that's John Henry Moss. That's like the legendary league president. I just said, you know, hello, nice to meet you. Uh, But, I mean, very few people can rival having a – had a career, you know, a stewardship over a league and an influence in minor league baseball, uh, you know, the way he did, just being, you know, in charge for that long. And you've got, you know, a lot of uh, venerable teams in that league, you know, starting alphabetically with the Asheville Taurus. So you can go down, uh, you know, all 14 of those teams and just find some uh, some really interesting things. And speaking of Asheville, you know, I, I chose one of my favorite fun facts for them, uh, how uh, five years ago in 2015 to manage, man, uh, to landscape the the hilly area just beyond the outfield which is real you know a lot of thick tangled vegetation and it's on a maybe steep slope it's really hard to landscape it so they hired goats to landscape the area just beyond the ballpark and i just love the idea of a minor league baseball team hiring goats to uh, clean up the land uh, just beyond the outfield and ben one of my favorite facts in this one that i had to learn myself i can't say i knew this going in uh, especially now because we're talking so much about team rebrands 
in football, in potentially baseball. We'll see. Obviously, we talk about that a lot at the minor league level, but the NFL, MLB, we might be seeing some some big team rebrands down the road. You talk about the Greenville Drive when they first moved from Columbia, South Carolina, when they went from the Capital City Bombers to the Greenville Drive. They actually had one team named Vetoed, which was the Joes, named after Shoeless Joe. Um, how often do you have you ever heard of Major League Baseball stepping in to be like, no, you can't use this team name? And that happened in 2005. Do you think that could fly now, maybe? I don't know. I think maybe with 15 more years, uh, it would be a little less controversial. But my guess is that if a guy has been banned from Major League Baseball permanently, that, you know, if they're going to, there's going to be an affiliated team, you know, you rarely see Major League Baseball exercise veto power with a minor league team name. I'm not exactly sure even how that relationship works, but um, I'd like to think they can maybe get away with that now. Um, I don't know how great a team name Joe's is. You know, let's go root on the Joe's. Go Joe's. It doesn't necessarily fly off the tongue, but I love the history there. And as I mentioned uh, in the article and uh, something I've, a place I've been able to visit on a couple occasions is literally across the street from where the Greenville Drive play. Uh, there is a house that Shoeless Joe Jackson used to live in that has been turned into a museum uh, dedicated to his life and his career. And it's, you know, it's all decked out in, you know, period accurate furniture. And it's just like a real cool, you know, thing. But if you're going to go see a minor league baseball team and you're a baseball fan and you're visiting Greenville, it's really cool to be able to go to that museum across the street. And, uh, you know, what could have been the Greenfield Joes, uh, Greenville Joes. I'd love to see them uh, have a what could have been night and maybe uh they can get away with it without Major League Baseball exercising that almighty veto power. Would the players have to be shoeless, though, to make this a true promotion? <laughs> to, to really be accurate, of course, uh, every player uh, on Greenville's team would have to be shoeless, which, uh, speaking of Major League Baseball veto power, I'm sure that farm directors uh, would not have a problem with that. <laughs> um, one more thing before we move on from this topic, uh, because this is a story that I was unaware of, but... Uh, Daniel Wagner, a, a second baseman for the Kannapolis then Intimidators back in 2010, uh, was attacked by a bat, uh, the animal, while playing for the Intimidators uh, in in an early stage of his minor league career. Ben actually interviewed Daniel Wagner uh, about that. One of my favorite things, in addition to all of the, the quotes from Daniel Wagner about being attacked by a bat, Ben uh, posted a scoreboard graphic from Winston-Salem, uh, in which that fun fact about Wagner was listed uh, on the scoreboard. And it also, I don't know if you noticed this, you took it at 12.34 in the afternoon, one, two, three, four, which adds to a, a little bit of a, a creepy <laughs> element. But uh, Daniel Wagner, so there are bats flying around the field in Kannapolis. He was playing second base. He was next to uh, Tyler Saladino, now a member of the Samsung Lions of the KBO. Uh, and they're talking to each other about, like, you see these bats? And then all of a sudden he gets, like, literally attacked by a bat. He said, quote, it was clamped on my leg, so I swiped it off my glove, and it ended up on the ground opening and closing its mouth at me. I could see the fangs. It was super creepy, worse than a spider or a rat, just nasty. That I don't in any way at any time in my life want to experience anything like that. Yeah, that is truly horrifying. And that's one of those stories that I, you know, I don't want to claim ownership of it, but just doing this career as long as I've had, I've just had for over the course of almost a decade now, I've continued to promote that story. And I do owe it to the fact that, you know, a very on point, uh, uh, Daniel Wagner played for the Winston-Salem Dash in 2011, the year after he was uh, attacked by a bat. 
And, uh, yeah, I went to some super hot education day game, and I saw that graphic on the scoreboard mentioning that he had been attacked the year before in Kannapolis. And it was that photo that, you know, allowed me to promote that story. And then later I uh, contacted Daniel Wagner and got his take on it. Um, and every so often on Twitter, you know, I promote that uh, picture and his quote from it that was originally one of my blog posts. And now I had an occasion to put it in this fun fact article. And I feel like I'm doing the Lord's work, you know, a decade after this bad attack in Kannapolis that, uh, you know, I'm really trying to keep the story alive. And, you know, Daniel Wagner, I don't really know him, but he's on Twitter. And every time I mention him and mention the story, he uh, seems to take pride in it and retweets it. And uh, I think he enjoys telling the story because, look, if you were a minor league baseball player and you got attacked by a bat on the field, I assume you want to tell people and i hope that you'd appreciate you know professionals such as myself who uh, do their best to keep that story circulating and to uh, let that legend live on and to let daniel wagner uh, his minor league career live on through the spectacular story the best thing about it is that the uh the winston-salem dash um in that graphic that you posted it literally says quote was attacked by a bat and then in parentheses the animal last <laughs> the year animal. on the field while playing for class a Canapolis. pretty good yeah, yeah. I mean, I could see the confusion there. Although right. I don't know if anyone yeah, would be attacked game. by, but you know, if you were attacked by a bat, you might be attacked by I don't know a man with a bat. Yeah, someone with a bat. <laughs> but, it's very passive. But you were attacked by a bat. Yeah. That's like a, the start of a horror movie. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like some angry cartoon bat with like eyes and a mouth. You know, like some grandiose logo being like and like running around the field. We might see it one of these days. The night the bats came to life. Yeah, well, that'd be that's a good one. Horror movie. Let's start oh, brainstorming. We've mm-hmm. got our idea. We're all gonna. Yeah. This time next year, when we are uh, when we're all Oscar winners for the night the bats came to life, you uh, you all know where it started. Um, ben, last week we <laughs> talked a little bit about um, some of the creativity minor league teams uh, have come up with to try to capitalize on uh, the cancellation of the season and um, you know being able to stay engaged with fans and all that uh, from t-shirts and other creative elements. Uh, you got a story on that coming to the site now, correct? Yeah, working on it now. It's been a slow day, but uh, I will have something up soon. Um, Yeah, you know, it's one of those things. It it was last Tuesday, I guess, what, eight days ago that the season was canceled. And as much as we knew it was a foregone conclusion, and of course we talked about this last week, you know, it still hit. It was still a gut punch when it hit. But there was just that great minor league spirit, you know, starting with the Bowie Bay Sox, that like a half an hour after the season was officially canceled, it was like, hey, we have a T-shirt. We're undefeated. Buy our 2020 undefeated T-shirt. And, uh so I talked to the team earlier today because they were the ones who initiated the idea. Of course, like any minor league baseball idea, a lot of teams have copied it, you know, with their own undefeated season shirts. And then we've seen it go in other directions. You know, we've had a couple like sort of implied profanity shirts. Uh, the Myrtle Beach Pelicans have a shirt that says 2020 unflocking believable. Uh, the Durham Bulls uh, had one that, you know, kind of went viral yesterday. It said, what, what does it say? Uh, 2020, this is bull shirt. I believe is what their what their shirt says. And, you know, as soon as these undefeated shirts came out, I was like, well, if all these teams are undefeated, who's taking the losses? Uh, Eugene Emerald, were, I think, the first team to answer that question. They put out a shirt that says 2020-0-76. You know, they're a short season team playing 76 games. And then it says, like, thanks a lot, COVID. So, you know, they, they're saying, going the other direction, they're saying, like, we didn't win a single game this year, but it's not our fault. It's uh, COVID-19's fault. So, uh, you know, just trying to round that stuff up, uh, tell a little story about the Bowie Bay Sox and how they came up with the idea, and just kind of speak, you know, briefly, but hopefully in a fun way to that minor league spirit that prevails even in these dark dark times in which we all are holed up in our compounds with nothing but our stockpile of uh, supplies to sustain us corn nuts and uh and t-shirts of undefeated and winless seasons that's all we need to survive this. Benjamin Hill, who really was on, uh, 
on Twitter at Ben's Biz, and all this stuff is up on the site right now at MILB.com. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Tyler, and thank you, Sam, and I look forward to speaking to you next week uh, from this very same compound. We're headed down a, uh, a historical track for uh, our minor league MILB.com writer spotlight conversation this week as we welcome in our good buddy Rob Terranova. Rob, what's up, man? How are you? Doing good, doing good. Uh, hanging in, hoping to get through this final reopening phase here in New York. It's uh, yeah, we're all of us who are not in uh, in the New York area are keeping our fingers crossed so tightly for all of you who are in the New York area, our uh, big cross country MILB family. But um, for for those of you who want to uh, step out of the present world and think back uh, almost 60 years now, um, Rob's got an awesome story up on the site about a guy who you may have heard of. Uh, His name is Lynn Nolan Ryan Jr., known to you all as Nolan Ryan, uh, who at 19 years old uh, made his major league debut and also uh, did so on the uh, heels of just a ridiculous short time in the minor leagues. And there is a ton of great stuff in this story, uh, but it's this is like one of those things that uh, is Paul Bunyan-esque when you talk about what Nolan Ryan did in the minor leagues. Um, I mean, th- there are numbers in here and stories in here that are just like, is this stuff all real? Could he have struck out that many people in that many innings? Like, this is a this is a pretty incredible story. It's basically exactly what you would have expected if you imagine Nolan Ryan facing hitters in the minors. That's absolutely right. Uh, Paul Bunyan, great, great comparison. Uh, it really is almost made up. Uh, just having the chance to do all the research and, and find all this information, it really is amazing. And and just when you think you got to the pinnacle of it, you kind of peel away another layer, and it's like, wow, how did this happen? So it's uh, it was definitely a, a really fun story to do, and um, I hope everyone out there enjoys reading it. And in your research for this, because, again, Nolan Ryan is somebody we all know pretty well, uh, during his time in the major leagues, but not a lot of people know his time in the minors. So as you were digging into this specific 1966 season, what was maybe the most surprising aspect of that season for him? Or what was the most memorable moment where you were just like, oh, this is big. This is something that we should be talking about. The most surprising thing that I came across was something that Tyler alluded to just now, just how automatic double-digit strikeout performances were for him that year. I mean, just ridiculous. Every every time he took the mound, he went the distance or got close, and he was constantly posting double digits. And then he even suffered a blister at one point, and there was some concern over that. And then he came back less than two weeks later and, and had an 18, uh, 17 or an 18 strikeout game. It was just absolutely ridiculous. Um, as far as the stories go, there is one story. I'll give you guys an exclusive here on the podcast. There is one story uh, that I came across that I did not put it in my article, but I thought that was pretty good. When he was uh, warming up in Greenville for one of his starts, uh, fastball got away from him and hit the netting behind home plate. And there was a woman who was a season ticket holder sitting real close, and the ball ricocheted off her arm, and it broke her arm. And she asked Greenville to change her season tickets so that (laughs) she wasn't in harm's way anymore. Wow. That's, uh, I would imagine a Nolan Ryan fastball would do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, did, yeah, don't you have right. another story in here about he, like, knocked out his catcher with yeah, a changeup? with a changeup. Well? 
That's right. That's right. It was just before his first start in Double A. So, so uh, his the Greenville season had ended. Just to reiterate some of those numbers, he finished that Greenville season with a seventeen and two record. It was the most wins and fewest losses by any pitcher uh, in that league. Uh, and then in twenty eight starts, he threw nine complete games, had five shutouts, uh, and uh, two hundred and seventy two strikeouts in one hundred eighty three innings. So just ridiculous. So he's coming off of that season. And he's warming up for his first start at Double A, and he says that uh, he hit his catcher Duffy Dyer in the head with a changeup, and uh, Dyer had to be taken off the field in a stretcher because of a concussion. The amazing thing just, is, like, just like crazy stuff. With ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people, you would think like, oh well, at least it was his changeup. At least it wasn't a fastball. But <laughs> Nolan Ryan's changeup was like one hundred and forty miles an hour anyway. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, Rob, exactly. the. Uh, one of the, the crazy things about Nolan Ryan, and obviously this is a, a much different era of baseball, but he's drafted in 1965 um, in the uh, 12th round, by the way, uh, goes with the eh, like nine trillionth overall pick. Um, but he only <laughs> spends parts of the 1965, uh, all of 1966, and then one appearance uh, in 1967 at Class A Winter Haven, three with Jacksonville, and uh, and a handful more with the uh, Florida International or Florida Instructional League Mets. But after 1967, Nolan Ryan never sets foot on a minor league mound again. And it's like I said, it's a very different time. But this is a dude who pitched 27 professional seasons. Nolan Ryan broke into the major leagues. He made his major league debut in 1966, so when Lyndon Johnson was president, and he uh, finished his major league career in 1993 when I was in third grade. Like, his longevity is insane. The fact that there's such a limited minor league scope and he was so dominant just shows you, oh, well, that figures. That guy would have that kind of career that followed. It is something that he emphasized uh, a lot in his autobiographies, that he really wanted to take care of himself. Uh, he said that when he first broke in, he saw a lot of guys just relying on talent, and they, they never really hit their potential, or they never really made it to the next level and, and got a sustained career. And that was something that he, he talked about being afraid of, not hitting his potential, cutting himself short. Uh, you know, he's a small-town kid from Texas, and this was his dream, and he didn't want to blow it. So one of the things he always emphasized was not taking a day off, eating right, really taking care of himself, uh, hitting the weight, and obviously it paid off for him. I mean, there's, there's a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of guys that do that, and it doesn't always work out, but it, it obviously worked out for him in a big way. And one uh, partnership uh, I want to ask about briefly that you bring up, and I'm sure more came up in your research, is his discussion about partnering up with Tom Seaver. And uh, there's this great quote in here. I was just there trying to have fun and make living with a gigantic fastball. Uh, he wanted to be, he being Seaver, wanted to be an excellent thinking pitcher. I was amazed just to hear him talk about it. Uh, what about that partnership maybe took Ryan to the next level? Because everybody knows about his texas size fastball. He obviously pitched close to 30 years just on, on velocity alone. But um, how much did that early work with Seaver and that early partnership help him for you know all the major league success that was to come? Oh, it was a huge part. He talks about Tom Seaver being the first guy that kind of uh, paved the road for him as far as where he wanted to go and how to get there. Uh, kind of what you alluded to in that quote, he was just kind of a young fly-by-sea kind of guy, just 
uh, throwing fastballs that he knew that hitters at this level couldn't catch up to. But if he was going to make the jump and he was going to start facing better hitters, he knew he had to develop more pitches. He had to be more disciplined. He had to really learn the mental aspect of the game, how to pitch, uh, mix, keeping guys off balance, kind of playing that chess match that you see in every baseball game. And he credits Seaver with being the first guy to kind of get that in his head and, and show him the way. And obviously, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better mentor as far as pitching than Tom Seaver. And uh, one one I want to touch on before we let you go, Rob, is uh, you bring it up at the end of this piece. Um, Nolan Ryan was expected to be called up. He was in what was expected to be his last outing for Double A Williamsport, and then he had a no hitter going through four innings. And his manager Bill Verdon comes up and asks, "You know, do you want to keep going? Do you want to aim for the no hitter? Do you want to just leave and get on a you know?" a train or a plane to, to New York city. And he says, if it's all right with you, I just as move, move on along to New York. My question isn't about that necessarily, but for either of you guys, what would you do in that situation? Would you try to keep the no hitter going at double a, which is cool and a unique individual moment, or would you just immediately try to get to the majors as quick as you could that one start be damned? Well, I'll just pull another quote of his that I read where he said his thinking like he just couldn't see, how a no-hitter in the minor leagues could compare to a major league debut in New York City. So um, I'm kind of with him on that. Uh, he, he did just about everything he could do at the minor league level. He was obviously chomping at the bit, dying to get to the big leagues, saw his chance, and uh, didn't want to waste any time, didn't want to possibly risk getting hurt, going for something that he thought was less meaningful to him than you know, going to New York for his major league debut. Yeah, that's uh, I think, you know, if you were to tell Nolan Ryan, like, don't worry, you'll have 27 years ahead of you in the big leagues, then maybe he sticks around for a little while. But you've just worked your entire I guess I I say your entire life. He was a teenager when he made his major league debut. (laughs) So you've worked your entire life for something. Yeah, I think I would just I think I would jump on that if I know that the next step for me is making it to the big leagues. I think that's that's all I've ever wanted in my life. I think I'm going for it. Sam, what are you doing? I mean, I, I think it, I, I asked the question, but I do feel like it, it is a little bit of a silly one just to think, like, are you going to want the majors or just more double-A time? You're always going to take the majors. But I just love that question in the middle of it. Because, like, yeah. nobody – today, yeah. nobody talks to the starting pitcher unless it's the catcher or the starting – or the uh, pitching right. coach. Like, nobody has that discussion in the middle of the game. The closest we have to that is Gavin Lux getting called up in the middle of the Texas League All-Star game when his manager says, hey, get out of here. You're going up to Oklahoma City. Like, these discussions don't happen, especially where the player has the, the decision-making. And I just love that so much of, like, we'll put it in your hands. What do you want to do? It's just awesome. Yeah. And I wish we had more stories like that, you know, 50-plus odd years uh, later. It is pretty great, and uh, Nolan Ryan's got one of those baseball reference pages um, that you can go back and look through, you know, like Barry Bonds or Tony Gwynn or Joe DiMaggio or Ted Williams that just blow you away. Uh, His 1966 numbers in total in his 32 appearances between Greenville and Williamsport, 2.36 ERA, 307 strikeouts in 202 innings pitched uh he also walked 139 but when you strike out 307 <laughs> uh you can kind of counter that but you go back through 
all of his major league time, all 27 years uh, with Houston, the California Angels, the New York Mets, the Texas Rangers. Um, it is, it's pretty incredible stuff. Uh, and the fact that Nolan Ryan is a legend in the way he is um, in a, from an era of baseball. Can't even really call his career an era of baseball because he spanned multiple eras. Uh, pretty yeah. incredible. And also, fun fact, never won a Cy Young. That is something I was uh, – when I saw that, that was definitely something that jumped off the page. Um, I was like, how is Incredible. that possible? But, yeah, never want to find out. Incredible to me. So, something else yeah. to keep in mind is, is when, when you think of his, his longevity, he pitch counts back then. Right. Right. Yeah. Nolan Ryan was out there throwing 170 pitches a game. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that guy was a That's not even monster. a crazy exaggeration either. Unbelievable! I uh, I have a, a family friend who was at his seventh no hitter. That I'll I'll always remember that. Like I knew somebody who was at a moment in baseball history like that, and I thought that was so cool when I was you know six years old or whatever it was when Nolan Ryan threw his uh, his last no hitter. But yeah, do yourself a favor someday when you're bored sitting around on the on the computer or on your tablet or whatever, go look at Nolan Ryan's baseball reference page because it is unbelievable um, what that dude did. And uh, this is a great story. It's up on the site right now. Um, Rob, terrific work as always. You can find Rob Terranova on Twitter at RobTNova24. And uh, we love this one, man. This is great. Thanks for coming on with us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take it easy, guys. Before we go, visit the MILB Fan Lounge, your destination for all things fun. Play home run derby and test your minor league baseball knowledge with trivia on Tuesdays, and there will be exclusive prizes given out to one lucky fan each month. Visit MILBFanLounge.com today. Final segment of this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, Sam with a, a nationwide prospect fun fact for our weekly digestion from week to week, uh, which we did not discuss, but I'm assuming you have. I do have one. Yes, <laughs> with the fact that we didn't discuss it was just normally like, we lead you know, into this by saying like Sam will say, "Oh yeah, I got the the fun fact ready." I completely did not even ask. I didn't. I was leading into that thinking, "Oh, I might just have to cut this and start over." But you've that's got okay. one. I, I came prepared. Dang it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So with Julio Rodriguez as as the guest this week, I think I did a Julio Rodriguez fact a couple weeks ago when he played the hero in our uh, show before the show plays yep. the show. Yep. Game, So I, I leaned away from that a little bit, but he is the inspiration for this. Uh, looking back at 2019, there were five players to make their major league debut before their 21st birthday. They were Elvis Luciano with the Toronto Blue Jays, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. with the uh, Toronto Blue Jays, and then three Padres, Fernando Tatis Jr., Adrian Morajon, and Andres Munoz. It's kind of interesting that... Two of them were Blue Jays, three of them were Padres. Probably tells you something about the organizational philosophies there. Um, but Julio Rodriguez, as we're recording this, is 19. Um, I don't know if he's going to make his major league debut. I don't predict that. I wouldn't put money on it. Uh, but what we talked about in that first segment of there are certain teams, and the Mariners are one of them, that won't compete this year, but they need to get these prospects at bats. They need to get them experience. J-Rod is right in there. Um you know, they've got some interesting outfield pieces, but if they believe in this guy as much as they say they do, there's a slight chance we could see him up there. Just get some hacks, do what they did last year with Kyle Lewis and Justin Dunn and Justice Sheffield. Bring them up late in the season, let them get their feet wet, let them get used to a major league situation, and then really look forward to the next year. Um, so they could do that with Jared Kelnick. They could do that with Julio Rodriguez, Logan Gilbert, maybe even Emerson Hancock, their first round pick this year. Um, but yeah, we'll see. 
that this is the target right now. Five, we're 21 and under. Will we break that in, in 2020? We'll see. What do you think, Tyler? Do you think we'll get more or less? I think we'll five? get more because I think the season is so weird that franchises are going to just say, you know what, let's, let's go for it. Especially if you're not in contention. Um, I think it'll feel to a lot of organizations like, hey, we've got nothing to lose right now. Why don't we, why don't we just get this player a shot? So I think we're going to get more. I, I would love that. Um, you know, Wonder Franco fits the bill, obviously, to a T. Love the race to give him a shot. So I, I would take the over for now, too, but this is something we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on, uh, probably more so in September than we do now. And if you're a Mariners fan, we keep telling you, get excited because uh, it seems like your door is opening very quickly. Um, big thanks to the Mariners' second-ranked prospect, Julio Rodriguez, our nationwide road of the show ambassador this week. Uh, big thanks to Benjamin Hill and Rob Terranova, as always, also. And uh, for Sam Tripp, I'm Tyler Mom. We'll talk to you next week. 